And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now, just remember verse 7. This is, <laughs> this is so crazy. Moses was 80 years old. And Aaron, 83 years old, when they spoke to Pharaoh. Brother Sam just celebrated an 83rd birthday a couple weeks ago. That's how old Aaron was when they started their ministry together. 83 years old. Awesome. We could just close in prayer there, but we're not. Uh, There's a lot more awaiting us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh God, I really am excited to be around Your Word this morning. These chapters just amazed my soul this week as I pondered that really we have a grand picture of the great grand mission of our God in these chapters. It's unbelievable. So God, I pray this morning that You would allow us, Your people, to see it, believe it, adore it, embrace it together. God, I'm praying that Your Word would go out. I'm praying that it would uh, entice souls, Lord, for You. Lord, I'm praying that it would uh, give richness to faith. And Lord, it would give life where there might not be life. Uh, Lord, I just pray that Your Word would go forth. But Lord, I'm praying that the fruit from even this message will not be felt only on these souls, but Lord, would You by Your grace allow fruit to come from other souls, Lord, from from souls that aren't here. And Lord, would You be so kind to maybe those be souls from, from other tribes and tongues that we do not even know of right now. God, we pray for that. It's a big prayer, but You are a humongous God. I pray, Lord, that by Your Spirit, through Christ, you, Father, would work in the midst of your people this morning. Amen. Well, you have a note-taking guide. Here's how that uh, works for you. Just big picture. On the back, I just put a big picture overview. We're covering a lot of text. There's no way I can do justice to all of this. But there are some assumptions I'm making um, in the text. In particular, the bottom there, the points of repetition that are really important as to why I framed the sermon the way I did. I want you to have it. I don't have time to explain it all, but I want you to at least have it. The front side there will kind of be a guide. There are four points. There's the text and also any text that I plan on getting to this morning. Uh, That's where they are. Big picture, even though you've got it there, and it might be helpful for you for just a moment to be on the back. Let me give you the overview of what happens in these chapters of 7 through 15 of Exodus. Recall that God had made a promise to Abraham back in Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, and He promised him that He was going to make him a father of a nation. That nation would be called the people of God. And Abraham at that time didn't have any children, but God gave him a son, and God gave his son two sons, and one of his sons was named Jacob, and Jacob he gave twelve sons. Jacob's, one of Jacob's sons was Joseph, and Joseph ended up, through the amazing work of God, leading the people down into Egypt to where they now are. Now, that they were there for about 400 years. They had ended up in Egypt as now slaves. They multiplied like crazy. They fell out of favor with the Pharaoh of Egypt. God then raises up Moses, his servant. He tells Moses at the age of 80 and Aaron at 83, you all go back 
Moses had left Egypt. He told him, you go back to Egypt. And here's what you're going to do. You're going to go to the king of the land, the most powerful man in the world. And you're going to tell him, let my people go. So they did this nine different times. And on nine different occasions, the Pharaoh said, no thanks. And on nine different occasions, God worked a miraculous plague upon the people of Egypt, sometimes upon his own people were part of it, but most of the time only on the people of Egypt, turning water into blood. Uh, he, he made gnats come out of the ground. He made frogs go everywhere. There were flies. There were boils on their skin. There were hailstorms. There was locusts. There was darkness across the land. All because Pharaoh would not let the people go. Finally, Pharaoh relented after God told him, I will go through on a night and I will wipe out the firstborn of every household unless there is blood painted on the doorpost. And God did that and Pharaoh relented and let the people go. The people began to go out of the land. And as they are walking out of the land, Pharaoh changed his mind. They find themselves pinned in at the Red Sea on one side, the army of Pharaoh marching down on the other. And God miraculously opens up the sea, parts the water. The people of God walk across it. As soon as the army of Pharaoh stepped in it, God brought the judgment that He promised and He drowned them and they all died. That takes you from Exodus 7 through 14. And then if you... The beginning of our worship guide was part of chapter 15 where Moses just turns around and has a praise fest and says, God, you are unbelievable. It's a song of Moses in chapter 15. So uh, we started that in our praise this morning. So what's going on here? Well, I put on the bottom of the back there some points of repetition. This really drove me as to how to to structure the sermon. But also what drove me is I realized that the first six chapters of cha- uh, first six verses of chapter seven summarize exactly what I'm after in an amazing way. So what I'm really going to do is exposit those verses um, and then point us to what's happening in the rest. First thing, there's four four points. One takeaway. Here's the takeaway. I want us. And it's a big takeaway. I want us to see, believe, adore, and embrace the grand mission of God. I want us to see it, believe it, adore it, and embrace the grand mission of God. Four points this morning. One, God's sovereign intentions. God's sovereign intentions. One of the things that's striking about the first couple verses of chapter 7 is the measured control of God. So we often refer to the measured control of God by a big word called sovereignty. That is, we say that God is sovereign. That means He's in control of all things. Some people read the story of Exodus as if it is God against the gods of Egypt. And that is not the story penned by Moses. Quite the opposite. Moses is careful. He's jealous to show the precise, distinct control of God in all realms. Notice before Moses ever speaks to Pharaoh, that's what's happened in chapter 7, he hasn't even talked to Pharaoh yet. God outlines the entire story before it begins. How? I mean, imagine you're getting ready to embark on something that is not by any means certain. You're going to go tell the most powerful person in the world to do something they don't want to do, and somebody telling you, and here's how exactly how it's going to go down. But that's exactly what God did to Moses. Notice the first person active verbs. Watch. I have made you. Like a God to Pharaoh. You shall speak all that I command you. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Over and over we see this. Now this might not take us by surprise. Because we often speak of the future with certainty. But realize we do that with ignorance. So we say things like this. I'll see you next week. You know, we look forward to going to the beach this summer. 
I can't wait till Christmas this year. But do you realize that we actually say such things with complete, utter ignorance? And do you realize the Bible actually warns us against such speech? James chapter 4. Come on now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. So these are people saying, we're going to go do this and we're going to go do this and we're going to do this. He says, yet do you not know what tomorrow will bring? What is your life? It's a a mist that appears for a little while and vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. We will live and do this or do that. I'm not suggesting that we legalize our speech about the future tense. Because you can legalize your speech and miss your heart. But I am suggesting that we embrace our impotence to control anything one nanosecond from now. I realize this quite often when I put my son to bed at night. He often says, I'll see you in the morning, Daddy, or something on those lines. And he's asking it a lot of times as a question. Now, he's too young for me to explain future tense and past tense and certainty and omnipotence and all those things. So I usually say, I'll see you then, buddy. But there is a certain sense in my heart to which I always have a certain doubt. I don't know that, though. I can't look at you, Asher, and say, I'll see you in the morning. Daddy might not have a heartbeat in the morning. You might not have a heartbeat in the morning. This house might not be here in the morning. Do you know how many fathers last night probably said good night to their sons and that did not, they never saw them again. There was no morning. We have no control over the future, but God has ultimate control over the future. It's exceptional language that's used here. It's exceptional language that represents exceptional power. God speaks about what is going to happen as if it has already happened. You and I can speak with certainty about the past. Well, our memories are pretty bad, so we should be kind of careful. But for things that just happen, we can talk with certainty. Like, I can say I took a sip of water a few moments ago, right? That happened. You saw it. It happened. God can speak with the exact same certainty about the future. How is it? Folks, I'm driving this point home. Every detail of every future event has already been penned by God. The book has been written and is on the shelf and it contains every detail of your life. That's amazing. He does not simply know it like a wizard looking into a crystal ball and saying, and this is going to happen and that's going to happen. He knows it like an author who wrote it and knows exactly what you'll do because he penned it. That's what's happening when Moses, when God tells Moses, this is going to happen. You're going to go do this, and then this, and then this, and then this. Another way to put this, do you remember just a few weeks ago, we looked at Genesis chapter 15 when we were going through. And remember before, uh, Isaac doesn't come around until Genesis 21. So in Genesis 15, God goes ahead and tells Abraham, there's going to come a time when your people are going to be enslaved in a land for 400 years. That's before there's ever an Isaac. Guess how long they've been enslaved in the land of Egypt? You nailed it. 400 years. So 200 years before they ever get to Egypt, before there's ever an Isaac, God looks at Abraham and says, here's what's going down. How does he know it? I tell you how he knows it. Because he's the author who wrote it. He wrote the books. There's an extraordinary difference between us and God. We fret about the future and God has never fretted about anything. We speak about the future in terms of what we want to happen. God speaks about the future in terms of what He has determined to happen. So to understand the mission of God, 
We have to understand it is a mission He has already ordained in which He is in full control and in which He will do exactly what He pleases. Every person, every angel, every demon who has existed or ever will exist will align themselves ultimately to the will of God. There will be no exceptions. Number one, God is sovereign over all things. Alright, point two. Point two, God has a grand purpose. First, first one, God's sovereign intentions. Next, God's grand purpose. Alright, we've seen that God controls all that He does and nothing happens outside of His ordaining. That's what we just saw in those verses when Moses or God is saying to Moses, this is going to happen, that's going to happen, this is going to happen, etc. But this is what's great about God. It's incredible. <laughs> We've had this our entire lives. So we don't we don't really stop and think about how incredible this is. It's like when Shankar came here and I was driving him from the airport and I thought he'd be really excited about things like, you know, um, some of the big billboard, digital billboards we have and whatever. And uh, it's when he first arrived in America and, and uh, we're driving and he said, these roads, they all are straight. Well, yeah, that's kind of how we build them. We tend, tend to make them straight when we can. They all have painted lines. And all the lines are perfectly placed. Well, yeah, we intended to put them there, right? I never thought, thank you, tax money for painting stripes. Those are helpful, right? I think this is the same way we look at the Bible. We've had it so long. we don't. Re- God has told us about Himself. He doesn't just tell us about Himself. He's gone further. He actually tells us not only what He's going to do, but He's kind enough to tell us why He's going to do it. Point one is that God tells us what He's going to do. And point two is that God is loving enough to show us why. He actually shows us His purpose. Alright, how do we get this? Look at verse 5 of chapter 7. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. So what's going to be the outcome? God, why are you doing all this? What's the purpose, right? You just read it. The Egyptians shall know that I am God. That's what all this is about. There's a lot of ways God could have gotten His people out of Egypt. This is the way He chose. Why? Because He wants the Egyptians, when they go out, He wants them to know their God is God. And He wants the rest of the world to watch as well. Egypt is the most powerful empire at that time. If He makes them bow the knee, ergo the rest of the world bow the knee. So, how do I see this? You say, that, that seems like a lot to pull out of that one verse there. It is a lot to pull out of that one verse. By the way, it's okay, but there's a ton of other places across these chapters. And it blew my mind as I'm going through this week underlining. Oh my goodness, I'm still underlining the same thing. Right? Here's one of the things that you see repeated all the way across. God's doing what He's doing so that they will know He's God. Let me give you just a couple of places. In, in, on the back of this thing, I give you every instance that I could find with a quick look. Um, pe- uh, one, God's name to be known, vindicated. Two, people rescued to serve God's is under points of repetition. Do you see every single reference there? There's dozens of them. Let me give you just a couple. In the very first plague, Mo- Moses tells Pharaoh... By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Moses tells Pharaoh during the second plague that the frogs will subside so that these frogs are going to stop jumping around everywhere. That's got to be the nastiest of the plagues. I don't like frogs. We got some swampy ground near our house and those things, ugh, I don't like them. But anyway, that's, that's not it. Anyway, he says all these frogs are going to stop. How? Why? so that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. Before the seventh plague, God warns Pharaoh that he is sending hailstorms. Why? 
Why are you doing that? Good question. That you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. And the references keep going and going and going. God is on a mission for a purpose. He wants His name to be known. God is explicit concerning His intentions. He does it all over the place. When He goes for the swarming of the locusts, He tells Moses He's sending all the plagues, I love this, in order to show the signs of Mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I've done among them, that you may know, Moses... That I'm the Lord. I want the Egyptians to know that I'm the Lord, but I want you to know, and I want your son to know, and I want his grandson to know, I am the Lord. God desires that his name be praised among all the earth. That has never changed for God, ever. God is the most massive being there can be, He deserves all praise and all adoration. He desires that your life and my life be a banner waving right over our lives, that our lives just serve like a banner that says, He is all and in all. This is the chief reason you have breath. I know it feels like just a simple thing that you say in church and everybody says amen and hallelujah. But hear me, this is the whole magic behind the universe The entire cosmos runs on this principle. It's why planets orbit the sun. It's why electrons orbit the nucleus of an atom. It's why water boils and ice floats. It's why you took the breath you just took and it's why you're going to take your next one. Because God wants glory. And it is why Jesus was born of a virgin. It was why He walked a perfect life. It is why He died on a cross. It is why He was resurrected from the grave. Because God wants His name to be known across the world. He wants glory. Have you ever wondered why God chose the plagues He did? They're odd. They're just odd. Um, I've grown up hearing about the plagues my entire life, so it takes a lot to you know, stir me with these. So I started thinking more about these this week. That's when the whole frog thing really freaked me out. That's weird. Why did you choose these, God? I mean, really, why did you choose those? Well, you won't be shocked. It wasn't arbitrary. It was perfectly planned. The Egyptians had a ton of gods. They had a ton of gods. They believed, they were, to say they were polytheists is to put it lightly. They had gods for every created thing. God went at the heart of every one of their gods with every one of the plagues. I gave you a list for every plague. I gave you a list of the false gods that represented for Egypt that plague. That's what's going on here. So... When he decides to turn the Nile into blood, he's going after Kanun, the god of the Nile. When he decides to go with the frogs, he's going after Hecht, who is the god of fertility, who's shown up as a frog. He goes after the gods of the soil. He goes after Eudekit, the gods of the flies. He goes after Ptah, the god of cattle. He goes after Imhotep, the god of healing. That's the boils. He goes after Isis and Seth, the god of agriculture. And then the last ninth plague, he sets everything to darkness because their chief god was Ra, the god of sun. What is he doing? It's not like just randomly saying, I'm going to make this miserable for you. He is saying, your gods are nothing. I'll put them down quicker than you can even get up. I am God. I'm in charge of the ground. I'm in charge of the sun. I'm in charge of the water. I'm in charge of the flies. I'm in charge of the cattle. I'm in charge of your healing. I am God and I want you to look at me and praise me for who I am. Lest we think that there's a sense of taunting or playfulness. Like maybe it's the picture of Elijah with the prophets of Baal. That's not what's going on in this picture. No. There is a sad darkness in the land of Egypt. There are people worshiping 
false gods in order that their crops would come up. There are people worshipping false gods in order that their kids might be healed. There are people worshipping false gods in order that the sun might stay the sun. There's people worshipping false gods so the Nile would give them a good rainfall. There are people worshipping false gods in every land that we live in. There are people worshipping false gods in our land. There's people worshipping false gods across the world. They believe in gods that are not God. And God is saying, I hate it. I want them to look at me and say, you and you alone are God. He wants to save them. And He wants to save them in order that they might serve them. One of the points of repetition throughout this thing, and again, I marked it for you, I think it's number two on those, is over and over we get this language like we do. uh, Even Pharaoh himself, I love it, Pharaoh himself finally says, okay, okay, look, You all can go that you may serve the Lord your God. Brother Mark did a great job of bringing that out in the sermon. His last sermon on this. God didn't just save the people. He saved them in order to serve Him. And that's the beauty. When God saves a person, He does it in order that they may finally bow down and worship Him as He is. Why does He do that? It's the same reason if you save a fish... I don't know much about fishing. If I ever talk about fishing, you know I'm ignorant. All right, but I'm going to guess on this one. If you save a fish, you want to save them. You want to keep them alive. I would think you've got to put them back in water. Why do you do that? Because he's a fish. That's how he thrives. When God saves us from our false gods, He puts us into Himself because we were created for God and then we thrive. That's why God saves us to worship Him. Because it is what we were created to do. Point one. He has a sovereign intentional plan. Point two. He has a purpose. And now point three. He has a measured plan. He has a measured plan. Alright, if you have a nudge buddy, if you don't know what a nudge buddy is for a sermon, you need to get one of these. Alright, and that is somebody who will hold who will hold you accountable to not nodding off, right? Um, and the demon of sleep runs through churches, right? So you're gonna need a nudge buddy for this one because we're getting ready to do some thinking. Alright, so if you're thinking I'm getting ready, I'm thinking this is trailing off towards the end, he's just gonna coast us up. No, not at all. We're putting in a low gear, we're gonna plow, and we're gonna hit some heavy stuff, okay? So get an nudge, buddy. Get ready to go. This is awesome. Alright, God's measured plan. We have seen that the Egypt people fall into two categories. Man, I enjoyed writing this. There's one of two categories. There are those who recognize God as the one true God, and there are those who worship God who worship false gods. That's it. You fall into one category or the next. You either recognize God for who He is or you worship false gods. But don't you realize that's the same thing for everybody in the entire world? Every person you know, you can put in one of those categories. You either worship the real true God or you worship false gods. Call them what you want. They're false or they are the God of gods. Okay, we're together on that. That wasn't the hard part, I promise. All right. We've established that God has complete control over all things and in working all things to His glory. Got that? He's written a book. He's got it all worked out. Okay? So that means he must also have control over who falls into these categories. All peoples will serve the glory of his name. But they're going to serve the glory of his name in one of two categories. Keep that in mind. I'm not drawing my own inferences here. I want you to see this straight out of Exodus, not Egypt. Um, Exodus, uh, verse 7 and uh, 3 uh, and 4, and then I'm going to show it to you in a couple more places. All right, verse 3. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. you got to like that when you're getting ready to go on an evangelistic call. Don't worry, it's not going to do any good. I've already hardened his heart. It's exactly what it is. Has he even talked to Pharaoh yet? Nope. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Who's going to harden his heart? Who's talking there? God. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, 
He will not listen to you. Man, this is just getting more encouraging by the moment. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, Israel, out of the land of Egypt by the great acts of judgment. Right there. He says, you're going to go. And there's, there's going to, people are going to fall into two categories. They're either coming out because I'm leading them out or I'm going to judge them. That's it. He lays it out in verse 3 and 4. They're in one of two categories. Some will receive His judgment. Some will receive His salvation. I tell you, this is hard. It's tough for us to swallow. We don't talk about it much. But hear me, it's intensely biblical. This is in the second book of the Bible that we're in. And it goes all the way through to the last book of the Bible. Stay with me. Notice before Moses even talks to Pharaoh, God tells him he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh will not listen. By the way, that's my North Carolina Pharaoh. You like that, right? Yeah, I like that too. I was down in Florida this week and they made fun of my accent. Um, But I told them at least we have an accent. Y'all don't have an accent because nobody really is from here. It's a swamp and people just migrated. One day it'll flood and y'all head north and then we'll be making fun of your no accent. But anyway... um, But uh, that has nothing to do with this text, so please leave that alone. If I offended you, I should not have done that here because this might offend you and I don't want you to be offended by that. Anyway, but he goes further. God explains he will harden Pharaoh's heart. Unless we think that that's just one little verse here in chapter 7. That God just kind of throws it out there and, you know, maybe we read it wrong. Look on the back. You'll see. Points of repetition. Point number three, hardening of Pharaoh. Look at all the references. Quite a few there, right? I counted them up. Why? Because I have nothing better to do with my time. I counted 18 references to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. I counted three that say Pharaoh hardened his own heart. I counted seven that speak of the state of his heart being hardened. I counted eight times. Now this is just in the span of chapter 7 to chapter 15. Eight times that God says, He's not going to listen. I hardened his heart. You count that up, that's 18 times. Let me tell you just a little bit about reading literature. When you read something in a small amount of chapters that's repeated 18 times, it means something, right? So wait a second. That doesn't seem right of God. How can God harden Pharaoh's heart? That seems wrong of God. The Bible is so helpful. The Bible knows you're going to ask that question. It knows I'm going to ask that question. And so in Romans chapter 9, we get an answer to what question do you think? To the question, isn't it wrong of God to harden Pharaoh's heart? Romans chapter 9. Verse 14. Romans chapter 9, verse 14. I think it's up there somewhere maybe. There we go. Okay, here we go. Follow with me. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? This is the question. Is that wrong for God to do? Paul's answer. No! By no means. For he says to Moses... I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Verse 16. So then it depends not on the, not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That was point one. I mean point two. So then He has mercy on whomever He wills and He hardens whoever He wills. If you believe the Bible, you have to believe those verses. I didn't say it's easy. But I'm telling you, you have no choice but to believe those verses. All people fall into two categories. Those to whom God has mercy and those who He does not. That is, all men are accounted as evil and worthy of God's wrath. 
Upon some, God is going to be merciful and save. I know it's hard for us to swallow, and I think it's because we bring this assumption, this question to the text. We come to the text, listen closely, please listen closely. We come to the text asking this question, I think, I think. How is it that God can be just, He can be right, He can be good, He can be loving, put whatever you want there. How is it that He can be good, God, just, whatever, and not show mercy to all? That's the question we bring with us. We, we got it packed up in our modern Western bag. We open the text and we just dump it down on it. But that's not the question of the text. It isn't the question anywhere in the text. Instead, here's the question the Bible seems real jealous to answer. The Bible seeks to say, how is it that God can be just, good, loving, right, put ever what you want there, while showing mercy upon any? Let me say that right again. We come to the text saying, how is it that God can be good and not show mercy to all? That's our baggage that we bring. But the text doesn't ask that question. The text is always seeking to defend this question. How is it not that God might show mercy to all and be good, but how is it that God shows mercy to even one person and is good and right and just? Now, just so you don't think I'm just making this up, we're going to spend the next couple of minutes, I'm going to defend that point right there to you. I'm going to defend it right from the text. Why is it that I believe the Bible wants to defend the idea that it has to show us how it is God is just if He shows mercy to any? Let me show you. First, understand God is in full control of the fact that Pharaoh's heart is hardened. I just want you to keep this in mind. The Bible is clear that while God is in full control over Pharaoh's condition, Pharaoh still bears responsibility for his heart and heart and will be justly judged by God. In fact, it's interesting. The more Pharaoh sees of God's power up close, what happens? the harder his heart gets. I submit to you that's the way it is for every person. But notice, the Bible is trying to defend not while Pharaoh was hardened, but while the Israelites were pardoned. That's what the Bible's after. How do I get that? Well, first of all, Ask this question. Did God rescue the Israelites from Egypt? Yes. Okay. Why? If He's going to rescue the Israelites from Egypt, and we're going to get right to the text, but if He's going to rescue the Israelites from Egypt, why doesn't He just let them walk out? Why does He give them these bizarre instructions? It's bizarre. Go kill a lamb, every one of you. Put its blood in a bucket. Now just imagine if every Easter you did this. Alright? I'm going to imagine Mark over there at the Lawson household. Right? He's got a, a bucket of blood. What are you doing? Oh, it's just time again. Getting a, you know, we killed, we killed our lamb out back. And now we've got the blood and we're painting it on the doorpost. That's what he made everybody do. Why? Why go through all that? And then he's going to send an angel through the land and when he comes to the doorpost that has blood, he passes over. And when he, when he comes to the doorpost that don't, he, he goes on. Why? Why? The blood stained on the doorpost of the Israelites' home does not simply point to the cross of Jesus. It demands the cross of Jesus. God cannot simply pass over it. Alright, look at Exodus chapter 12, verse 23. You can turn there, you can look up here. Alright, here we go. 
The Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. Just stop and think. I mean, just read. What did it just say? God's going to come through. He's going to pass through and He's going to do what? He's going to strike who? The Egyptians. Are there a lot of Egyptians compared to the Israelites? Yes. Alright, so it just said God's going to strike a bunch of people. Now we're getting ready to get the defense of why He's doing that, right? He better defend Himself as to why He's doing this. I mean, a good God would not just go striking people, right? You tell me where you see any defense of God for striking the Egyptians. Show me in this account where God feels the need to defend Himself over striking the Egyptians. Show me. The answer is it's not there. Why? Because it's assumed by the text. They are born under Adam. They have these false gods that they have worshipped as if they're the real God. They treat God or their gods as, as if they can actually save them. They spurn the real God. They killed the children of God's people. They deserve judgment. No defense needed. Right? Now keep tracking with me. Because the Bible does feel the need to explain some things. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. That thought is done. And when He sees the blood of the lintel on the two doorposts, then the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. There's your explanation. It doesn't even go on to say, I mean, it assumes He's going to save you, right? But it feels the need to explain why and how it is He's going to save you. How is He going to save you? He's going to save you and He's going to pass on over the Egyptian houses. He comes to a house, He sees no blood, He kills the firstborn. And he, the Bible sees no reason to have to defend God is just for doing it. They are in sin under Adam. They deserve judgment. He comes to the next house. Now, he sees a doorpost. Now he sees blood. And he says, I'm not going to kill them. And the Bible says, but we need to explain why to you. Why does he not do that? Well, because there's blood on there. It's the blood of a lamb. So, when he passes over that house, I submit to you, he doesn't just see the blood of Egyptian lambs spread over those doorposts. See, the Bible says... He sees the blood of Egyptian lamb spread over the doorpost, but He counts it as the blood of whom? Of the only begotten Son of God. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now He's just. Now He's okay to save them. How can He save them from their sin? He didn't forget about their sin. He didn't just act like it didn't happen. He went fast forward to the cross of Christ and He said, Oh, I can pass over because my son is counted. One house after the other house after the other house after the other house. The Bible shows that all men are under the curse of sin. Every man and every woman who's born under Adam will get the judgment of God unless they believe upon the gospel and they enjoy the mercy of God. Done. We're going to come back to that in just a second. Let me make one more point and we'll keep moving. Remember, God doesn't simply... You know what? We're going to move past this because Mark did a great job in this and I want to get to the next point so we still have some time. I was going to explain to you again that God doesn't just save them so that they can go play and have fun, but He saves them in order that they may what? Serve Him. But see, you already get that point, so we're going to move right on. Mark defended that very well. Um, also, you can look at Exodus 13, 17 through 18 for a good argument of that as well. Okay. So is there, they're coming out of there. And uh, yeah, let's real quick, Exodus chapter 13, verse 17 and 18. Let me let you see this. They're coming out of there. 
This verse trips me out. Really, think about this. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Okay, that makes sense. Just follow what's happening there. So he's, he's left them out of Egypt. He's, they're trucking down, and God says, I don't want to take them that way because they're going to see the Philistines and they're going to get scared, right? I'm with you, God. That makes good sense. These are some fickle people. You better be careful. Get their confidence up before you go through a tough route, right? 18. But God led them around the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land equipped for battle. <laughs> okay. I, I did not want to get past this point because in these chapters. This is amazing to me. Let's not take them around where the Philistines are because they might get scared. They might fight, try to fight, not do well and be, and be frustrated. Instead, let's march them around down towards the Red Sea so that when Pharaoh and his army come down, they've got absolutely nowhere to go and they're completely helpless. What? Like, if, if a commander did that, I, got, I know nothing about commanders, but if he did that, I'm imagining that somebody's going to say, hey buddy, you don't have a job anymore. That was a bad plan. Right? Why does he do that? This is an amazing point for us. He does that because God didn't save you to just get you started in this thing. He saved you to the uttermost. He saves you so that you will be helpless and now forever rely upon Him. So He wants to get them all ready for battle. I love that. They're all ready for battle. How much battle did the, did the Israelites do getting out of Egypt? Nothing! If you consider it battle to walk across the ground, they did a lot of battle. Otherwise, they did no battle. Who did the battling for them? God. Brother and sister, this is just a point we couldn't... I didn't want to go past. If you're struggling in sin and temptation and frustration in the walk of God, would you be reminded by the Scriptures this morning, you don't have to fight. God is fighting for you. He has saved who He's going to save. As soon as He passed over their house, they were already out of Egypt. There's nothing they could do to keep themselves from getting out of Egypt. He already secured that. Our God fights for His people. And He leads them out. I just love this picture. you got the cloud and what? The fire. And He's walking them out. I just hope you see your life this way. If you're a believer in Christ, do you realize this is your life? God has saved you from your sin. He has walked you out from your sin and He says, don't you worry. You just keep depending on Me and I'm going to walk you right home. You say, but that's, you know, they got the cloud and the fire. I'm telling you, it's nothing compared to His Word and His Spirit. They had the cloud and the fire, but He's given us His Word. He's given us His Spirit as seen through the church. Alright, last point's quick and we'll be done. One point one is that God has sovereign intentions. He has a sovereign plan. Or sovereign, he has a grand purpose and then He has a measured plan. And the measured plan is He is going to have mercy on whom He has mercy. For our mission mandate. This is what I think we're real tempted to do when we hear a message like this. I think we're tempted to go, so let me get this straight. God's got everything already written. Check. And let me get this straight. He's going to get glory from every creature that lives. You already said that. And the Bible affirms that. Check. And He's going to have mercy on whom He has mercy. That's right. It's intensely biblical. You really can't argue that. Check. So why do we want to do anything but just sit around and wait and let it happen? Right? I mean, wouldn't that be a fair question back? I mean, He said He's going to save us to the uttermost. We don't do the fighting. He does the fighting. He's going to do the saving. So why do we go do anything? I submit to you that if there are any two people in the world who've ever been able 
to ask that question. It would be Moses and Aaron in Exodus chapter 7. God just told him, you're going to go, and guess what? He's not going to listen. And then I'm going to do some judgment. Then I'm going to take the people out. And Moses and Aaron are 80 and 83. I think we would all be like, you know, we kind of understand if they're like, well, you know, why do we need to do anything? Look at verse 6. Moses and Aaron did so. I love the simplicity. He tells them, you need to go. This is what you need to do. Verse 6. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded. Romans chapter 9 says, God will have mercy on whom He has mercy. He will harden who He hardens. Romans chapter 10 says this. 9 says, He's going to have mercy on whoever He wants mercy. He's going to harden whoever He wants to harden. Romans chapter 10, the very next chapter says this. How will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in Him and who they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? And as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. I want us, is the point of application, I want us to see, embrace, believe, and adore the plan, uh, the, the whole plan and mission of God. But folks, I want us to look at it and say, and therefore let us go. If He's already ordained both the end and the means, then let's go. Let's go to those tribes and tongues who've never heard. Let's go to those people who are bowing down to gods that are not gods. Let's be part of telling. I love uh, Revelation chapter 5. You remember the elders are gathered around the throne and they look over and there is the Lamb. And then there you get that chorus. Worthy are you to take up the scroll and open the seals. For you were slain. Remember? And by your blood you have purchased for yourself men for God from every tribe and people and language and nation. The Lamb's blood's already been spilt. The doorposts have already been painted. What do we do? We go. We go to every tribe and every language and every people and every nation and we declare there is one true God. Repent and believe today. Because this is what all of life is about. It's one grand mission. And Exodus 7 through 15 is only a picture of the great grand mission of God. Let me pray for us.